Today, as we continue Pastor Brian's series on the Gospel of John, I will be reading from chapter 11, verses 1 to 53. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews, Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to God today. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I was always amazed as a kid. Now, if you're young, you gotta remember, I was born in the 70s. So Superman, to me, was from 1978. And I was always amazed at this point in the movie where Superman reverses the rotation of the Earth. 
in order to send back time and rescue Lois Lane, who had died, whom he deeply loved. And, and I remember his anger and his rage showing that losing her whom she loved was unacceptable to him, right? It was unacceptable that Lois Lane had died. And so he, he, you know, he, he went against his, his father Jarrell's advice uh, against meddling in human affairs. And he, he uh, obviously, if you're a physicist, this doesn't actually work, but he flew around the earth so quickly in reverse that he, he, he sent time backwards and saved his Lois Lane. That always fascinated me as a kid. Now, fast forward to you guys. Um, even, even in a movie like Marvel's, you know, uh, Marvel, the Marvel series uh, masterpiece, the, um, the climax of that series, Endgame, addresses the idea of bringing back half of the universe's population from having been unjustly terminated. The Avengers disagreed with Thanos that you could be logical without being moral, that you must be both. You know, it's interesting, but I've been thinking all week how despite our modern, rational resignation to death as just a natural part of the human experience, a part that we should resign to, a part that shouldn't bother us, a part that we should embrace as the natural order of things, despite all of that, we keep trying to beat death. It, it's not just in the old fairy tales, it's in the new stories that we're writing and in a way believing in even today. Humanity keeps trying to beat death. Why is that? I, I, I think because we're still not okay with death. The most unemotional, the most rational atheist trying to convince you that death really shouldn't matter at the end of the day, somehow personally rages at death, like the old poet Dylan Thomas, rage against the dying of the light. So I don't think it is well with our souls. I think that's why we write stories like Endgame and Superman, because death is not well with our souls. It doesn't matter who you are and where you're coming from and what you believe. And so what I think we do is we settle in this life. And what I mean by we settle is, is we have all sorts of coping mechanisms, all sorts of coping mechanisms for settling. Uh, we are overachievers. That's a coping mechanism for some people in settling for nothing more than death being natural and okay. The coping, me the coping mechanism of overachieving and always trying to be a success. Uh, and more obvious ones like substance abuse and getting addicted to things. Or, or here's one, controlling your life and controlling your circumstances and trying to control all the people around you is a coping mechanism and settling for the reality of death as just something natural. Even ideas like thinking about suicide, a coping mechanism, settling for the idea that this life is all there is and death is just a natural biological process. While the world settles for all of these types of temporary relief, 
Jesus offers permanent restoration. And Christianity invites you to wrestle with death. If you follow Jesus, you have permission. He welcomes you to wrestle with death and to not settle for it. And ultimately, through Jesus and in Jesus and by his power, overcoming death itself. And that's what we're going to talk about today, wrestling with death but not settling for death and ultimately overcoming death through Jesus, okay? Now, in wrestling with death himself, Jesus, in John chapter 11, shows his remarkable humanity. This is the Son of God showing himself very much as a human being here. It's startling to us to see how he acts here, but it's also comforting, okay? Now, Jesus had earlier in John chapter 2 attended a wedding. Now he's attending a funeral, but it's not just any funeral. Lazarus is a close friend of him of his. his Lazarus's sisters, Martha and Mary, they show up in other gospel accounts. Whoever these people were, they were a family that Jesus was close with. Maybe he knew them as a kid. Maybe their families were connected to each other somehow. But he travels to where they live, to Bethany, to attend this funeral of someone he loved very deeply. And we're told in verses 35, uh, 30, starting in 33, it says that when Jesus saw Mary weeping, and that word for weeping means like wailing, like old school, ancient, or Sicilian funerals, like dramatic wailing. When he sees Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, back in those days, you hired people to weep and wail for you. He sees Mary and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. It says Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. He was greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept, John tells us. To say that Jesus was deeply moved John employs a Greek expression when he wrote this that in, in the common language of the day, it was a word that referred to horses snorting when they charge. That's what the word means when it says deeply moved. And then when John employs an expression like greatly troubled, he would also use that same expression later in this gospel to talk about how Jesus felt when he looked towards his own crucifixion, how he was deeply troubled about his impending crucifixion, and also how he was deeply troubled over the fact that one of his 12 disciples, Judas, was about to betray him. And then finally, we have this shortest verse in the Bible, but one of the most significant Jesus wept. Not a wailing weeping. It's a different word here. More of like, a, like just breaking out into tears. Like just tearing up and breaking down. Why such a display of emotion here? He knows what he's about to do. The whole time he knows what he's going to do. And he's seen a lot of other sickness and heartache and death in his life. So why this display of emotion? Is it, is it grief that he's experiencing over the death of his friend who he loves so much, over, over his friend's sisters wailing and weeping there? Is, is that what it is? Is it his grief? Yeah, 
Yeah, it's his grief. But is it also his anger over the power of death to separate us from this life, to separate us from ourselves and from each other and the people we love? Yeah, it's, it's not only grief, it's anger, it's indignation, it's outrage. Could it also be frustration at their unbelief? Mary really doesn't believe. Martha really doesn't believe. They know he can do anything, but in that moment, they don't believe him. And the people around him don't believe what he's capable of doing. So it's like all these things, right? When something terrible happens, especially related to somebody you love, your emotions are complex and several emotions exist at the same time. Anger, compassion, sorrow, all at the same time. And it's happening to Jesus here. I imagine Jesus as very agitated and, and breathing heavily not calm and collected like in so many other instances we see him. And actually, John Calvin captured the picture so beautifully. He wrote, Christ does not come to the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for the contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans for the violent tyranny of death, which he had to overcome, stands before his eyes. The Bible gives us permission to wrestle with death and to grieve over it and, yeah, to even be angry about it. Uh, Tim Keller once said this. I'm going to paraphrase it, but we don't sing and wax poetic about the circle of life like Mufasa did when Simba asked him, how does this whole thing work? Like, we eat the antelope, Dad. Yeah, well, you know, well... We die and then we become grass and the the grass eats, you know, the antelope eats the grass and this wonderful, beautiful circle of life and Elton John is singing and everyone's happy in the music, in the uh, movie theater. The reality is much more like what Simba experienced, not what Mufasa told him. When Mufasa died, Simba's world fell apart. That's the reality of death. When death gets personal, your world falls apart. Some of you are grieved because you've lost people just recently or maybe years ago and you're still experiencing grief, right? And, and sometimes you're angry about that. I, you know, I think of people I've lost in my own life and how even decades later, I, I, there'll be a moment where I'll think of something and I want to say it to that, that very person. It's a joke that only me and that person knew and understood. And, and I, and you turn, it's almost as if in your mind you turn to that person and you, oh, they're not there anymore. I can't share this moment with them. And so in every way, the reality of death reminds us that in some ways, even though we're surrounded with people, we're alone. Because we'll never get back the aspect of our life that that person inhabited, right? And so anger is an appropriate emotion when we realize what death has done, what death has stolen. And Jesus experiences it right here. And some of you are angry with God for taking somebody from you. But what's so amazing about John chapter 11 is we see Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, showing us that God is angry also. And more than that, we see Jesus at the tomb of his friend Lazarus showing us that God is weeping as well. God's crying too. 
over death. Christianity invites you to wrestle with death. It is most unnatural to ignore it. It is most unnatural. Now, though, though death is a mighty opponent, right, it doesn't get the last word for the Christian. That's the hope of John chapter 11. Death doesn't have the last word if you are, as the New Testament says, in Jesus Christ. We cannot beat death in this present state of things, right? We can't beat it but we don't settle for it. In Jesus, we don't settle for death. The Christian hopes in complete restoration. Soul, body, and community. Nothing less than the complete restoration of our souls, of our bodies, and of what we experience as human community. Now, there's a theme throughout this account, have you noticed it, of people not comprehending Jesus' intentions. There's a theme here of one person after another not getting Jesus, not only aware of, not simply overlooking what he's capable of, but overlooking what he's trying to accomplish. The mourners interpreting Jesus' tears as simply the fact that he loved Lazarus. Or other people saying, could not this guy who healed the blind man have, have prevented his own friend from dying? Or even Martha, right, when, when she says to him, I know, Lord, I know, he's going to rise again right at the end, when, when at, the, at the last day, when everybody rises again, which the, a lot of the ancient Jews believed. Yeah, I know, I know, Lord, he'll live again. I know, I know, I'm going to see him again someday, you know, like platitudes. Thanks, Jesus. Not very comforting right now. She, she takes it as a platitude that somebody offers you when you're angry and in grief and they're trying to make it better, right? And you're like, shut up. And so she's like, yeah, I know, I know. In the end, in the end, he'll come back, right? But Jesus responds, I am the resurrection and the life. So throughout this gospel, he's saying he's all sorts of things. I'm the living water. I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Now he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Notice he doesn't just say, I am the life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Here is proof from Jesus that our Creator is not settling for entropy. He is not settling with and satisfied with, nor does Jesus, as the Son of God, consider the decay of all things, including you, natural and the final story on how this universe is going to go. I am the resurrection and the life. The author of life, the giver of life, the sustainer of life intends to fully restore life. Or as Aslan put it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, death itself would start working backward. So the Christian believes in complete restoration. So we don't settle for worldly relief. We don't settle for coping mechanisms. But we trust in a God who will do so much more than what we want right now. Even so much more than we anticipate he might do. Paul reminded the Christians in Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul, that at the core of Christianity is hope. 
It is many things, but living as a Christian, at the core of that is hope. He said to them, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. He meant like Jesus did, those who are dead. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Notice how Paul doesn't say you shouldn't be grieving because Jesus rose from the dead. You shouldn't be grieving. No, he says you shouldn't be grieving without hope. Grief is a part of the Christian life, but so is hope. And hope outweighs, outranks grief complete restoration. We do not grieve like people who are grieving with no restoration. We do not grieve like people who grieve and believe that everything turns to dust and there is nothing else. So, I think the question we should be asking ourselves in light of John chapter 11 is how do we each settle for death? How are you settling for death as though you are giving it the last word? As a Christian, if you're a Christian here, how are you settling for death? Mary and Martha wanted Jesus to come quickly to what? To heal his brother, to prevent him from dying, right? And so Jesus, quite uncooperatively, teases the whole situation out. He just teases out his response. He shows up when he wants to show up. He does it in the way that he wants to do it. Um, his intention was to do a lot more than what Mary and Martha wanted him to do. Have you ever thought of it that way? They wanted him to prevent Lazarus from dying, and he wanted to do like a hundred times it, you know, uh, more than that. And so he shows up and they think he's failed because he couldn't prevent him from dying. Our sin, you know, we'll talk about sin briefly. Sin is, you know, theoretically rebelling against God, but sin is very practical when it comes to how we want to be healed and relieved. Sin is a selfishness and a self-centeredness, a, a nearsightedness, okay, uh, in how we view healing. We want intervention, we want relief, we want things like immunity, we want invulnerability, we want things like perfect justice in an imperfect system, right? But God intends a complete resurrection and restoration of every good thing. Now, some of you may be saying, well, I've read my Bible, and I've lived through this life, and I've suffered, and I already know that God may not actually will not give me many of the things that I want, including people being healed, including myself being healed or being relieved from some type of abuse or oppression. I know that Jesus works this way. So what are you talking about? Well, unless you think and speak and live in hope that he will do all of these things someday, you are settling. Unless you live in hope that he will do everything that you have to wait for now, you are settling. 
If you're not a Christian, if you're a doubter, if you're a skeptic, okay, if you're somebody who doesn't believe in God, you don't believe in miracles, you don't believe that there's anything outside of this life, or there's at least a flying chance that there may be something after we die. I, I, I respect that, and, and I respect you, and I'm glad you're here, but you're settling also. You're settling in a different way. You're settling for uncertainty. You're settling for living this life wondering, always wondering if your best life is really pointless and meaningless. Your best efforts, your best relationships, the people you love the most, you know, may really mean nothing. Now, you don't believe that in your heart of hearts, but you're settling because you're willing to live every day with a great amount of uncertainty that anything that you do really matters at all. We settle for very little. Whether you're following Jesus or whether you're not, we settle for very little. Despite the fact that our stories and our movies are longing for resurrection. You know, we kind of tease the old fairy tales for not being woke enough. You know, things like Snow White and, oh, you know, Sleeping Beauty. Oh, how simplistic. Oh, you know, you know, he gets the girl in the end. Oh, oh, she wakes up. Oh, you know, she comes back to life. Oh, we're still doing it. It's the same thing. Endgame is the same story. We're trying to overcome death. Even though we're telling ourselves every day, eh, death is fine and who really knows what's going to happen after I die? Probably nothing. I don't think we really believe that because everything we sing about and draw and paint and build, we're, we're longing for permanence. We're longing to mean something that the things we build and the relationships we make really do matter. Because I think really deep down, you know that it does really matter. And so you're settling for far too little. You know, the, the, um, the documentary filmmaker, Ken Burns, uh, you may have seen some of his documentaries, but one of his famous ones uh, on the Civil War, he tells this amazing story about when they were in the, you know, on the cutting room floor and they were editing the film. Uh, they were in the final process of, of editing and, and, and processing this movie. Uh, his whole team, when they got to the moment in their film that they had written and, and, and compiled, when they got to the moment when President Lincoln is about to be assassinated, they all kind of looked at each other and realized in that moment they could stop it. In that moment, when they were putting the film together, they were like masters of the film and they stopped the reel. They stopped everything. They stopped the whole process right before Lincoln was assassinated. And in that moment, they were all overwhelmed with emotion because they realized they had loved this man that they had never met and who had accomplished so much for their society. And in that moment, with the power that they had, they stopped his death by stopping the tape. But part of that grief was knowing that all they, was, they, all they were doing was pushing a button. They really couldn't stop Lincoln from being assassinated. They never could, and they never would be able to do it. And so in that moment of great courage and admiration for a leader long gone, they were really sad because they knew that they couldn't do what Superman did. 
And even what Superman did was only going to last for a while. Lois Lane was going to die anyway. But someone else has the power to bring people back. And Jesus said in that moment to his friend Martha, do you believe this? I told you when we started looking at the Gospel of John that it was going to get very personal. Jesus says to his own friend, do you believe this? I can't answer that for you. Jesus resurrected Lazarus to show God's power over death. It is the final sign of seven signs that John's gospel focuses on before we get to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Seven signs, and this is the last, and it's the greatest, it's the most outstanding, the most audacious, the most outrageous sign uncovering God's plan for this world. And we are told Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb, it was a cave, and a stone lay against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. And those who believed in him said, no, he's been dead four days, like there's, a, there's an odor now, okay? And he said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And he shouts out, he cries out, Lazarus, come out. And I want you to put somebody else in the place of Lazarus' name. Lazarus, come out. And in raising Lazarus, Jesus proved that God was capable of making good on his ancient promise that he would swallow up death forever, that he would wipe away all tears from our faces. The Bible's God weeps with us but he has the compassion to wipe away our tears. The God of the Bible rages with us at death. But unlike Dylan Thomas, this God has the power to overcome death. And you will overcome it. You will overcome it through Jesus. And that means more than just Waking up one day with this same body, it means the full restoration, the, the psychological, the emotional, the spiritual, the biological resurrection of your life if and only if you trust Jesus, the true life giver. And it doesn't matter how you die and where you're buried and how you're buried because God has your DNA on file and he will bring you back. And it's a beautiful thought to think of everybody who belongs to Jesus enjoying this sweet fellowship, but perfectly forever in his presence so that we will see Lazarus and we will see Martha and Mary and you will see people who have died in the Lord that you miss and that you love. And I will also. But more than that, we will get something that we don't yet want most, but we will get we will see Jesus. I know in some ways you want other people more than him. That's okay, I get it. But he's gonna give you himself, which is far more than what you've asked for or imagined. Death obeys 
Jesus. Death submits to Jesus. Death bows at the name of Jesus. So that even in death, we may say, it is well with my soul. While the world settles, while the world settles for temporary relief, things to occupy the mind and the body, coping mechanisms, Jesus offers permanent restoration. So listen, don't settle. You gotta live your life. You gotta keep a job. You gotta eat. I get it. We gotta deal with conflict. We've gotta you know, do things like vote and read the news and all of that stuff. But don't settle for these things. Jesus says, if you're proud of your accomplishments in this life, enjoy your reward. You're not gonna be able to take it into eternity. So why settle for the things that you can only keep now? There's so much more to hope for. Don't settle. Trust in a God who will do so much more than you have asked him to do. And as we prepare to take communion, let's pray. Our God, we praise you for your life that brought back Jesus from the dead. We praise you for your life that even now exists in every person who sees Jesus as Lord and Savior, who knows that Jesus is alive. Thank you for that life that is in us that will never be distinguished. Father, we approach our deaths. We, we think of the deaths of our loved ones with hope. We live in hope. We cling to hope. In the name of Jesus, amen.